Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Rich Scheidner had quite a run during the comedy boom of the 1980s, making multiple appearances on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, playing Al Bunny's co-worker on Married with Children, appearing in small roles in big movies such as Roxanne and Beverly Hills Cop 2, and writing for Roseanne, The Jeff Foxworthy Show, and The Mind of the Married Man. He's also written jokes for Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, and Jay Leno. In 2006, he co-authored a book of outrageously true road stories from stand-up comedians called I Killed, and later performed in the great documentary on stand-up comedy, I Am Comic. He's got a new book out now, recounting not just his life in the 80s comedy boom, but everyone else's too. It's called Kicking Through the Ashes. So let's get to it! It's pretty much... Rich Heidner, isn't that the secret is to look like you're you're on top of things? Whether you are on the inside. Yeah. When you walk on stage, if you look like you know what you're doing, that helps the audience a lot. If you walk up there, you know, you can see comic when they take the mic and they have a hard time getting out of the stand. Oh. The audience just goes, uh-oh. <laughs> they just go, uh-oh. But when you smoothly pull that mic out and put that stand behind you, they go, okay, this person seems to know what they're doing. You know... uh, we were talking about uh, Arizona and Tempe. When I was living in Arizona, I was an MC at the Tempe Improv, and I would have Dan Murr or I'd have other comedians come up to me and talk to me like, "It's not my jokes that matter; it's my confidence and how I, the audience perceives me." That's even more of the battle because if I lose them in those first five seconds, yeah, they're not going to have confidence in me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they, they. People get hung up. Some comics get hung up about the introduction. Say this and this and this. I have to have these credits and all. And even the greatest credits buy you about a half a minute. And then the audience goes, are you funny or not funny here tonight? <laughs> right. We don't care that you've been on all these other shows. What are you tonight? And the, same, the confidence is every... It's a performing art. Yeah. It's a performing art. I mean, we, we comics, at least for me... I always love the comics who have are the better writers that have that special point of view that write that great material, but it is come bottom line a performing art, and there are comics who virtually have no material who kill. You know, a uh, 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 friend of mine, Bob Nickman, calls them charismaticians. Oh, they're they're. They, I haven't they, heard that word, but that's that's a great way to describe right, it. Right, they kill without material because they can sell. They just sell. They just somehow sell themselves as funny. Some of the most famous comedians. Oh yeah, around are, I remember the are first those time, types of people. Yeah, first time I worked with Sinbad. Sinbad was great for that. I worked with Sinbad, and he nearly ran me off the stage. <laughs> he was my middle act in Austin, Texas, and I'm like going, "He's got no jokes. <laughs> he's got no material, and he's killing." Yeah. Yeah. Well, he. The, I mean, those kind of people are are, are those natural comedians who are just funny. They're just the moved. people who were funny at like the high school lunch table it's with just no joke like, it's the way they, they just... talk the way they move yeah yeah but you weren't ever that kind of person no i had to grind out every laugh <laughs> <laughs> well we're here to talk about your your new book kicking through the ashes my life as a stand-up in the 1980s comedy boom but um before we go all the way back to the 80s i want to start with um well we're in your house yeah in in van nuys yeah and uh, I've never been in here before, but I feel like I have because of the movie 
I am comic. Right. The, 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 you see behind you all the, the, the books on the shelves, the, the joke books. There are joke books there from the 19th century, from 1830s. Uh, all every book on every I have every biography by every comic. Uh, uh, you know the pictures on the walls. The, there's the Class Clown album behind you there, and Robert Klein's. I'm. This is my little comedy sanctuary. <laughs> but you led uh, Jordan Brady in here. Yeah. What was that? A, it's got to be about a decade, almost a decade. No, no, ago. no. It was like 2009. We did it in 2009, 2010. I think it came out. I am comic. Yeah, Jordan's a great so, guy. But, you know, when he came into your house, like you're portrayed in the movie as like somebody who's like done. Yeah, I was. So, yeah. So what? I was. You, you had you had, you had published one book, I Killed, I killed right? which is a, a compilation of great road stories from, right. from comedians throughout the years. Mm -hmm. So what were you, what, I, I what was your life like when Jordan I was, conned you into this yeah, no, documentary? He, he wanted to do a... Uh, a documentary about stand-up comedy mm -hmm. and I said well we we've got to make it about what it's like to do comedy and try to try to get to the soul of the comic and uh, and not just road stories not just you know crazy road stories which I love right and um, they're in that that documentary and then we were doing it and we were we we're going I hadn't been in a comedy club for a long time I quit doing stand-up comedy so I wasn't watching comics I wouldn't watch them on TV I wasn't you know it's was just hard to do it watch them and we we're, we're wait wait hold on before before I let you keep going, was it hard to watch them because you were jealous, or was it more like being a retired athlete watching exactly. watching the football game? I'd and you're it, like, I'd done it at every level. I'd done Letterman's, and I'd had TV pilots, and I'd done Carson and Leno, and I had HBO special. I'd done it at the highest level at, in my time, and so that's like a, exactly a great analogy. The pro athletes who quit, they sometimes say, "I never watch another game because I I'd done it." I'd done it, so I wasn't watching it anymore. I was just trying to figure out what else I was going to do, and I really wasn't figuring out anything else I wanted to do. So I was floundering when Jordan came up to me. I was—I didn't know what I was doing. I was—I was, I was uh, sort of writing for a couple of different comics and and tr and writing for TV. Um, so you—you you were bringing an income. Still. I was making an, a living, mm -hmm. um, but I really lost my passion. I was really kind of flatlining creatively and. And Jordan saw me one night. We were uh, we were at the uh, uh, United Citizens Brigade over in in Hollywood, mm -hmm. the UCB Theater. Right, UCB Theater, watching some comics. And Jordan just looked at me, and I guess I had a look of lust on my face, pure <laughs> lust, because they were killing this great space there, and mm -hmm. and, and it was just so it looked so creative. I think Todd Glass was on stage or somebody. I don't know. And and he just says, "You want to do this again?" I said, uh, "He said, come on, do it again." <laughs> I said, well, you're going to point a camera at a performer? I guess I'll give it a shot. So it was his idea, not yours. It was his idea. But he, he really turned my life back around. I mean, he really helped me get back into doing this. And I'm performing again. And I thought for a long time the writing and the performing were so separate sometimes. I didn't realize how much the performing helps my writing, the writing helps my performing. Okay. In all areas, even if I'm writing a book or I'm writing a story, if I'm performing, I'm sharpening my comedic instincts. What I think is funny rings truer on the page because I've got it calibrated from a live audience all the time. Right. And I didn't realize that. Well, that's, I, I kind of work, since I don't perform anymore, I consider my writing the performance. Yeah, sure. I, I, picture, I picture my readers sure. reading this out loud. Right. Or, I, or as if I'm telling it to them. Right. 
performing does a lot for me. Yeah. Not just mental health, obviously, which it does, but it also helps me, uh, like I said, just keeps me sharp comedically. I mean, you get that feedback and you get a real grounding of what is funny for you and for them so that when I go to the page, I really have that down. Was the feeling when you were, when you really started to get back out on stage around 2009 to 2010, was the feeling the same as what you felt initially? You'll never get 30 that. Years before, I'll never get that. That's, that's, like the, it, that's like taking the first drink. You know, <laughs> I'm never going to get that back when I first started doing it. You know, because I wasn't the same age. I was, I was 24 when I really started doing this. And I was not, I'd done it. So, but getting back, it was just really about exercising again, mm -hmm. getting my muscle back because you're just so out of shape. There's a, there's a stand up shape and I was out of shape, but it was a lot of fun and I appreciate it so much more than I ever have. So, how is the emotional reaction different than Me to the my... euphoria of? Well, of, I control of, of that. I, I, I'm able to handle that stage high mm -hmm. a lot better. For years before I, I quit drinking and drugging in 85, I couldn't handle coming down from that stage high. I really chased that high a lot off stage. Right, but, stuff to decompress. Right, exactly. You know, uh, uh, a friend of ours, uh, Howard, mm -hmm. who who you know, yeah, he once said to me, "You your job is when you come off stage, you have to deflate that ego and put it away, and then the next time you go back on stage, you have to inflate it again. <laughs> but, you know, it's easy to say, but inflating right. and deflating that ego is not easy. And so, uh, yeah, it was it was much easier to handle the emotional part of it. So when the movie came out, did you did you think that was going to res completely resuscitate your stand up career, or what was your no was no your... no? Because I didn't I I wasn't even sure then how far back I was going to go with it. I mean, I started doing it again in fits and starts, and mm -hmm. I'd go to these Hollywood places, you know, the the the, the new shows over there, like Tiger Lily over in Hollywood, mm -hmm. and. I'd go on stage in front of these younger crowds and younger comics, and I felt a little out of place, and I wasn't really sure whether I could be, not just relevant as a comic, I wasn't mm -hmm. trying to become another star again, you know, try to, right. oh, he's going to make it again, you know, I wasn't doing that, but just whether I could relate to them or whether they could relate to what I was talking about. So it took a little while. Uh, I wasn't sure how far I was going to come back with it. So you weren't thinking this was going to be your uh, Jack Roy becomes Rodney Dangerfield no, no, moment, no, like no. a second. No, no, and I, and you read, <laughs> I can reinvent myself no, as a no, second. No, 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 and if you read my book, I'm, I'm kind of aware of that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. There's like one a generation, basically. Lewis Black is my right. generation's Rodney Dangerfield. You have to really reach the younger audience. This is my theory anyway. Mm -hmm. you, you can't just reach your people again. You can't just get your generation. You have, The people are going to come out and see you and support you, really a younger audience so you have to almost uh for them for like rodney for us parodied our parents generation so mm -hmm. we were when we were laughing at rodney we were laughing at our parents too and lewis does the same thing for my kids you know he parodies our generation very well for them right the frustrations of a baby boomer yeah the baby boomers are just really uh, the parent for, for my kids we're just like poodles barking at a freight train <laughs> we're these like senseless little you know complaining about bottled water that mm -hmm. sort of thing you know ridiculous well, bottled water still is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous though we spend so much time yapping about it. Yeah. You know? So the stories that make up your memoir, you first started kind of flirting with, with them as individual essays on Facebook. Right. I know that's where I first saw them, and right. I convinced you to put a couple of you, them on my website. That's right. The Comics Comic. Right. What, what was 
what was the impetus for that originally? Was that just a writing exercise, uh, uh, or was I, it? A... I dedicated this book to Vic Anderson, mm -hmm. who was a mentor, spiritual mentor, and um, he uh, uh, was like, "What are you doing?" I wasn't doing anything. I said, "What did you used to do for a living?" He didn't know that I was a stand-up comic or a writer. Mm -hmm. So we used to do stand-up comedy. Why don't you do it anymore? Well, nobody will hire me. Why don't you go out and do it for fun and for free? So I started going around the clubs here. Mm -hmm. This is after I kind of uh, fell apart after the Jordan thing. I wasn't. Okay doing anything so i started going out and doing it for fun and then i started getting paid same thing with the writing he says well, why don't you uh write your stories anyway write, write this stuff because i would tell him stories he'd laugh he goes why don't you write these things well nobody's going to read them put them on facebook people like to read stuff on facebook so i started putting them on facebook and then you and other people would give me feedback that encouraged me to do more and then i had a to 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 put this book together i really wanted to have the history of stand-up in in the 80s so i did a lot of research and work on getting the history of the build up to the 80s explosion mm -hmm. with the 70s sort of the scene that was in the 70s right. into the 80s so I did a lot of work to make it a history book not just a memoir and then I try to cover every aspect of stand up comedy so the stories all have a reason so there's some stories that are redundant or aren't in there I post on Facebook just randomly now but like there's a story on joke theory there's a story on heckling when I got in a fist fight on stage from heckling those stories and then there's other stories about heckling I didn't put in there because it's just redundant right what was the first story you shared on Facebook? Do you remember which which one you first put out the there? The first one on Facebook that yeah. I put on? Yeah. Um I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say just off the top of my head was probably the Ollie Joe Prater story in Pittsburgh. And what was it about that that made you Because I had heard that story for years coming back to me, like I was there. Mm -hmm. I first told that story. Probably maybe the, the club owners would tell it too, but I heard it coming back to me. I go, that's not the what happened. I hear, I, hear people, I hear aspects of the story. I go, no, no, that's not what happened. I was there. I saw that. So I really wanted to get that one down right mm -hmm. away. Like I go, this one is like a legendary story that, that 80 comics would tell. And I said, but I, I was there. I participated in this. So I'm going to get this story down right away. And what was the reaction to that on Facebook? Well, it's great. I mean, the, the guy, the club owner, uh, uh, Bruno Schreppa, who who owned the club at the time, he responded. So, oh my God, yes, that's exactly what happened. And you you kind of forgot this part where we had to carry him into my car and drive him back to the hotel, and he reminded me of something I wasn't, I didn't remember. That's what was great about the Facebook. Sometimes people correct me, and sometimes people would go, "No, I was there. You're right. This happened." You know, and so they might help me with added a little something to it. Now, I remember also, once you started putting them on Facebook, you were going, I feel like my recollection is you were going to do it as, collect them as a one-man show yeah. before you thought of the book. Right, that's right. That's right. How did how did that go? Did that end up No, I didn't. I didn't do a one-man show. I, uh, um, uh, Bob Romanis had a, had a coffee shop over in North Hollywood, and mm -hmm. I did a, a, a bunch of uh, uh, nights over there where I just did stories. And then I thought, I don't want to do like a one-man show about it. I just want to do these stories. I want to do a show where I just do stand-up stories. And so I'm still flirting with that, still figuring out where I can do that to work it up. Because I've worked up about an hour's worth of stories I feel really comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And I need to flush it, like spread it out. Because most of those stories have <laughs> alcohol and drugs involved with them. So I don't want to do a whole, stories, a whole show of stories of just alcohol and drugs. So I have other stories I need to work out. I feel like... At this point, I need to launch my own radio or satellite station and then just have a weekly fireside chat with you. <laughs> and then you could just dish them out one week at a time. I would love that. 
I love, but I want to do it in front of an audience. You know, somebody said, "Why don't you just right. go in front of a screen and we'll just film you doing?" It? I go, right. "But that's no good because there were two albums. Yeah. There were stand-up comedy albums were done in history that I know of without an audience, and they were both done by big comics, big comics, Alan King and Buddy Hackett. Both did albums without an audience, and they're terrible. The worst <laughs> things they ever did. You have to have an audience. Right? Because... If you're telling stories or comedy with jokes, mm-hmm. you have to have an audience." Even if it's just one person or two right. people. So thankfully, we have a couple dogs. Yeah, yeah, they're right. <laughs> and a couple right. of family members roaming yeah, yeah, around. Everybody's kind of moving in and out. Yeah, so that's a testament to how great our stories are so far. <laughs> we've we've driven them all away. <laughs> um, once you started realizing that you were going to start putting more comedy history into the book and not just your history, what surprised you about going back in time? That you didn't um, that you didn't realize in the moment was happening. What an important part of stand-up comedy history the eighties actually was. How comedy before that mm-hmm. it became an art form. That was the other big era in the late fifties, early sixties with Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul when they made it an art form. And then it was still a side dish in show business. And now it's a main dish. It's stand-up comedy is important. It's everywhere. Presidents do it. Uh, uh, you know, when I did a count of how many comics there were in the country. Probably from the top in mm-hmm. the 1979, Steve Martin, Robin Williams, Richard Pryor, to the bottom, Catskill Comics, Las Vegas Comics, about 400 comics. There are 400 comics in West Hollywood right now. <laughs> and, 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 you and, have, and probably more. Probably right, more. more. I mean, back in the day when we first started, like the 80s comics started, mm-hmm. when I first started doing comedy, 1977 in Washington, D.C. If I told somebody I was doing stand-up comedy, they'd go, what? Stand-up comedy? I've never met a person who does stand-up comedy. How do you do it? Can you make a living doing that? And you tell somebody now, they go, yeah, I used to do stand-up comedy. And my sister's doing it. And my mother even gave it a shot. Everybody knows somebody who's done stand-up comedy. So it's a whole different, it's become that big, that institutionalized. Yeah. It's a career choice now. It wasn't a career choice then. I mean, you tell somebody you're doing it. My parents, literally, my dad used to joke that you know, people say, what happened to your son? I thought he was going to be a lawyer. He goes, I got abducted by the Moonies. He would rather joke that I was captured by a religious cult than say I was off doing stand-up comedy. And now you have fathers and mothers mm-hmm. going, taking their sons to the open mics at 17 and, and, and going, son, you got a chance here. You can make a shot at this. Yeah. <laughs> it's absurd, I know. It is pretty absurd. Um, wait, did you, were you supposed to become a lawyer? Yeah, I was in law school. It became it was it was unaccredited when I started. It was uh, international school of law and screen door repair, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> it it became George. My degree is from uh, George Mason University. Okay, because I didn't I I nineteen seventy nine. I just left them. Went up to I'd had all the credits I needed to graduate, but I didn't put in for graduation. So I just went to New York City in seventy nine, and a friend of mine was over the law office. Uh, the law school offices, uh, and uh, like a year later, and one of the people there said, you know this Rich Scheidner? He 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 could have graduated, but he never applied to graduate. So he called me up, and he said, uh, they said, they just need your signature. I said, sign it for me. And they go, what do you want to do with the diploma? I said, send it to my parents. <laughs> so I had sent it to my parents, and they held it for me. My dad, he was like laugh about it, you know. You, know, you have this degree from law, and you're, you're doing stand-up comedy. How hard was it in, in 1979 to build a... Stand-up comedy career. 
there was there, there was it was a very difficult time because there were no there were the, see it's hard to imagine people today there weren't comedy clubs all over there weren't paying comedy clubs there were in 1979 there were only three paying comedy clubs on the west coast the comedy store in Pacific Beach which then moved to La Jolla then there was the Laugh Stop in Newport Beach and the Comedy Magic Club in in Hermosa Beach. Those three. Right. The and improv they, had moved out. No, there were no. There, no there, but the improv in the comedy store in, in West Hollywood, they weren't paying clubs. They were showcase clubs, they called them. Mm-hmm. Nobody got paid there. To, even after the strike, it wasn't paid a lot. Then the East Coast, there were three comedy clubs in New York City. Again, showcase clubs that didn't pay any money. And then in 1979, in January, Garvin's in Washington, D.C. opened and started paying comics from... New York City or L.A. to come perform there. And then clubs started popping in Philadelphia, in Detroit, in Cleveland. And they started popping all up. The the comic strip opened up a Fort Lauderdale franchise in 1980. But before that, you you couldn't, it was hard. The only way you could make a living was to be an opening act for somebody in Las Vegas or something. The opening act jobs were the jobs that people aspired to get or to, to, to perform on a sitcom or something like what that. What was your aspiration at the time? Just to get as many laughs as I could. I didn't really know about it being a career. I really just got seduced by the laughter. I didn't come into this to be an actor, and obviously I was not a good actor. <laughs> I only got good enough to know that I wasn't good. Mm-hmm. And I, I just came, I got seduced by the laughter. I just loved hearing people. It was the music to me, and it helped my mental health a lot. And I think a lot of comics feel off to the side, sort of outsider types. And I definitely did feel that. I never felt really connected to people. But I was on stage when I was performing. It was the only time in my life I was in the moment, really in the moment. No past, no future, just this moment. And I felt connected to the people when they were laughing in a way I never felt connected to people any other time or place. That's what seduced me. That's what pulled me in. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to make this much money. or I don't know how many people, other than maybe Jerry Seinfeld, who had seemed to have a long-range plan mm-hmm. and a clear idea of what he was doing you know to get on a tonight show and but i didn't i didn't know even what the stepping stones were did that ever change sure even after as, doing, as, after uh, doing yeah Carson? sure you start to realize you're in show business and then then those goals became clear to me i i remember i was coming back from a gig in jersey and jerry seinfeld turned to me and said you know you're really funny but you don't have to work that dirty you know you're funny you don't need to work that dirty and i'm like well i'm just trying to get as many laughs as possible he said but you're gonna need to work clean you're gonna need to work clean if you want to do to the night show and that's the goal and I went, oh, yeah. And I started changing what I was doing. I said, yeah, I, I, I got to have a goal here. Did your comedy or your perspective on it change when you got sober? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, first of all, I had to – it was a hard adjustment to do comedy sober after I'd been doing it the way I was doing it. and um, But everything got uh, clearer, and my focus became better, and my writing became better, and my material became sharper, and my performance was better. Everything got better. My career, all the things that really happened for me in a better way, all the Tonight Shows, the Letterman's, happened after I got sober. Um, but I needed to do what I did before that. I mean, it broke down some walls and cut me free in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. The alcohol and drugs, I'm not going to deny that. But um, it became a trap that I was glad to get out of. Well, it's an illusion for a lot of artists that the drugs and alcohol fuels the art. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought for a long time I was funny because of the alcohol and drugs. Then I found out I was funny in spite of the alcohol and drugs. <laughs> you just you just happen to get a couple of jokes out there before you yeah. lost consciousness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I was doing it, like, but I didn't realize I was actually pulling weight with them. That, that they were 
they were, you know, they affected my attitude at to, to a certain point. You know, when I first started, it didn't. But then, it, then it started. I became angry, a little mm -hmm. bit more bitter, way too cynical. I'm cynical. You can't get way too cynical, and then you get into bitter and sour, and that doesn't work. Right. No, I mean, you were you were just telling me before we turned the mics on about about talking with Greg Giraldo about that. Well, Greg, you know, I say this now, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, he died of a drug overdose, so there's no big secret there. But when we did I Am Comic, we were at the Comedy Cellar, and we interviewed a lot of people there, uh, Louis C.K. that day, and a lot of people. And Greg uh, was someone we interviewed. It was great. He had that great line about he could feel the laughter. He said, I actually could feel it. He could feel it. And that I love that. And um, he, he said to me, he said, I know you're sober. I want to talk to you about that. So uh, I asked Jordan to turn off the camera and... and, and uh, Greg and I talked about that. And there's things you have to, a big part of being sober is being accepted. You have to accept things the way they are. Like when I got sober, guys who opened for me became big stars. Guys blew past me. You know, Jeff Foxworthy. Uh, uh, there were lots of guys who, who I knew. I, I, when I got sober, Sam Kennison became a huge star. You know, there were guys I knew who were blowing past me, you know, and their careers were doing well and prospering. And, and I seemed to be just kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. trudging along just kind of click 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 and and it can be frustrating you start wondering whether the, the, you know whether i'm going to get anything or not you know where's mine where's mine and, and i had to learn to be accepting and i was trying to tell that to greg because he was having a hard time reconciling that too because you because any given night any comic thinks i'm the funniest guy in the world i just killed this crowd like nobody could kill a crowd and then why aren't i getting more of it why aren't they having you know shows in theaters or TV shows? And, and Greg Gerolder was one of the funniest guys around. Well, absolutely. And I told him, I said, just get sober and stay sober and see what happens. It's my experience that everybody I talked to, I mean, Bill Hicks got sober. He got much better. He got much better. Things were really starting to move for him before the cancer took him down, mm -hmm. after he got sober. Um, I said, it was my experience that everybody I've seen who's gotten sober has gotten better and their careers have gone better. How do you how do you personally just from your own personal experience how do you st stay away from the temptations of resentment and when you <laughs> I like the way you put that when, well you know, it is a temptation. you were just talking about like comparing comparing your career to those of other people who yeah, shot yeah, past yeah. you on the ladder yeah and that's something that everybody you know no matter what your occupation is. There's office politics everywhere. Sure, sure, sure. But how do you, as an artist, you know, in a solo field, stand-up comedy, resist looking around and, and seeing, judging where you are and where you think it's, you should be compared to where everybody else is? I, it, that, the way you phrase it, I like because mm -hmm. instead of saying the temptation of alcohol or drugs, you said resentment, which is in its own high. Right. You know, that, that jealousy and that distraction, it, it, it never did anything for me creatively. You know, and but you're right. The, the being yourself, being an individual, stand-up comic, mm -hmm. it all seems to fall on you. It all seems to fall on you. Like my dad once said, you know, I, I don't know much about your business, but I can't imagine how hard it is. I sold. My dad had insurance. I had insurance business. So if somebody came in, they didn't like this brand of life insurance, Prudential. I go, what about Hancock, another company? Mm -hmm. I just offer them something else. He said, but if they don't like what you're doing, they don't like you. <laughs> right. Right, so it's hard to reconcile it because they're, they're, they're rejecting me. They, when, they when I don't get enough people to come into a theater, that means they don't like me. And so, but you have to learn. It's again, I I, I was at a group of people, and I constantly go around this group of people who who teach me these spiritual principles mm -hmm. and how to live sober 
and be in acceptance. It's really all that key. I give it my best shot. I do the best I can. I let the results go. And as I do that over and over, repetitively do that, and I talk about it in the book, like when I, I came back, I looked like I was going to get back on the Tonight Show, and I thought I had this Merv Griffin that went disastrous, disastrously. It was like a warm-up for doing the next Tonight Show to get back after I blew it with the alcohol and drugs. And I thought, oh, this Merv went badly. I'm never going to get on the Tonight Show. And one of my friends who's sober said, you don't know that yet. You just did the best you could with that Merv. You couldn't, you couldn't control what happened. What, I, what happened that Merv, I couldn't control. Mm-hmm. He said, you don't know that yet. And he turned out to be right because I did get the Tonight Show in spite of that. So I just had to learn by little lessons along the way to it be an acceptance. And resentments don't do any right. – they, they it's just nothing but harm. Corrosive. Well, the other the other thing that kind of parallels this is the idea of even taking away the resentments of other comedians in their careers, just the aspect of the timetable and how do you reconcile your timetable for achieving these marks, whether it's a, a TV appearance or a book deal or a TV deal or a part in a movie versus the way that it does eventually play out. How do you how do you reconcile that? Well, you, again, you have to be in acceptance. I mean, mm-hmm. you you kind of instinctively know that stand-up comedy is sort of like sports. You have a certain period of time in which to make it, mm-hmm. and then be, then you're no longer the young comic. You know, you you have your time, and they're always looking for the next young comic or a fresh thing in showbiz. And so you have a certain amount of time to get to a certain level. And really, that's the draw. That's the, you know, going from being a club comic to drawing people in a theater. That's the Snake River jump. That's the Grand Canyon <laughs> jump for comedians, you know. That's the separates the... Evil Knievel never made that jump. <laughs> he never made that <laughs> jump. Oh, a lot way. of comics don't make it from the clubs <laughs> to the theater either. That's why I use that analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, I, again, I just had to go, I'm just I'm doing my time. And like coming back now, like I said, my generation, all the kingdoms have been won. All the flags have been raised. It's, it's all decided. The territory's been conquered and it's laid out, and that's that. You are who you are. You're Seinfeld or you're not Seinfeld. So I'm not worried about trying to become something. I just like doing it now. So that's all pressure's off, so I can just be as creative as I can be and not worry about, am I going to get another Conan shot or am I going to get on Fallon? That, that, those are even questions for me. So that part's off. That pressure's off. But there's that period when you're young mm-hmm. where that's grinding at you. I so, like that word grind. Can you take that? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a grind. Um, yeah. So what are your aspirations at this point? No. Uh, I, 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 Other like... than selling as many books as possible. <laughs> selling as many books of kicking through the ashes as I can. <laughs> no, I, I, I want to write another book, uh, not about stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm writing a script about the first stand-up comic ever. And I'm, I'm th- those sort of, so if I get that movie got made, I would love to see that happen. But I don't have any kind of really loft. I don't have any lofty goals to keep being able to perform would be mm-hmm. great, and to keep finding things interesting I want to write about would be great. And for those young whippersnappers who are <laughs> being pushed by their parents as teenagers into what is suddenly a a trendy career, what do you what do you even begin to tell them? I can't tell them anything other than it's all function of stage time. Mm-hmm. It's all function of getting in front of an audience. Somebody asks, how do you get better? I go, you have to go in front of an audience. You can't practice this in front of a mirror. Now, maybe Jim Carrey could have practiced his faces in front of a mirror when he was a young comic, or some impressions can do that. But you have to be in front of an audience, a group, a room full of strangers, 
to find out whether you're doing this funny or not. And to do that, to get better at it, you have to constantly go on stage. It's all a function of stage time. There's no, there's no denying anybody who's really into this, you know, they, they'll, they'll go through a brick wall to do it. You can't tell anybody not to do it who's really a stand-up comic because they're going to do it. So I just tell them to go at it as hard as they can. Well, Rich, you certainly entertain me. So, <laughs> so thanks pleasure. for having me. Pleasure, sure. Really Thank it. you, man. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.